Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. Snow covers the mountains in Northern California and Nevada, a hostile terrain for any parachute drop, especially at night. Police believe he left the 727 in the flatlands of Oregon or Washington, but they are still looking in four states, even around the airport. A daring parachute escape from a flying 727 somewhere between Reno and Seattle, Washington. Greetings, Hushlings. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike, and we're joined, as always, by our co-pilot, Slick Frank Sanders. Certified co-pilot Slick Frank Sanders here. What is up, my dudes? What's up? What's up? Ready to take flight? Hell yeah. I believe I can fly. <laughs> <laughs> this week for Debriefing 26, we are diving out of a plane with D.B. Cooper. So strap on your parachute as we seek answers of how he leapt to an uncertain fate over southwestern Washington after hijacking Northwest Orient Airlines that departed from Portland International Airport on Thanksgiving Eve of 1971. But before we negotiate that ransom, make sure to follow us on all social medias. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And the official website of the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour www.hushhushsociety.com where you can find all our blogs, news, dropper review, and you could purchase the drip Hush Hush Apparel. All right, boys, I am excited about this. I have been looking into DB Cooper for the past few weeks, and this is one of the great heists of our time. Hushlings, follow along. This is going to be just an adventure. It's going to be an exhilarating flight. On November 24th, 1971, a man named Dan Cooper purchased a one-way ticket on Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. The ticket was purchased in cash. The man in his mid-40s wore a business suit with a black tie and carried with him a black briefcase and a small paper bag. He boarded the Boeing 727 and took his seat 18C. He proceeded to order a drink of bourbon and soda. The flight then took off at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Shortly after takeoff, Dan Cooper handed one of the flight attendants, Florin Schaffner, a note, which he placed into her purse, assuming it was a phone number from a lonely man. Take my number. Just <laughs> <laughs> a lonely businessman. Jesus. Hey, what's up? Uh, my, my name's Dan. Uh... <laughs> Here's my number. Give me a call. I'll be at the, I'll be at the Sheridan once we land. Yeah. Here's my number temporarily for the night because it's 1971. <laughs> Just make sure this number expires seven hours after we land. <laughs> oh my god! Cooper whispered, "Miss, you'd better look at this note. <laughs> I have a bomb." Why so seductive? He gave her because, because he had just number. given her the number. <laughs> he the points number. at his pants. I have a bomb. <laughs> sure enough, the note had mentioned the passenger did have a bomb. Schaffner asked to see the bomb, and Cooper opened his briefcase to reveal eight red cylinders resembling dynamite, with wires coming from them to a cylindrical battery. So, sounds like a bomb. <laughs> yeah, looks like one. That's yeah. classic. Yeah, that's classic cartoon bomb right there. Yeah. <laughs> Wiley Coyote shit. Yeah, Wiley He's got Coyote the anvil shit. too. It says Acme on the outside. Oh no. <laughs> Cooper went on to state his demands. He wanted two hundred thousand dollars in quote negotiable American currency, a fuel truck in Seattle to fuel the plane, and four parachutes, two front chutes, and two back chutes, all four of an older civilian design rather than up to date military issued chutes. 
Can I clarify something? What does that mean, negotiable American currency? Like, is he willing to accept rolls of quarters? <laughs> yeah, <little> <laughs> fives. <laughs> I think it means that he didn't want stacks of hundreds. Okay, okay, alright. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know, That's that was my take on it. Schaffner passed Cooper's demands to the pilots. Pilot William Scott contacted Seattle Tacoma Airport and updated the authorities of the situation. President of the Northwest Orient Airlines, Donald Nirap, confirmed the payment and told the crew to cooperate with Cooper's demands. In two hours, the FBI and Seattle police had gathered the money, parachutes, and mobilized emergency personnel. This happened back in the 70s, and they were just like, yeah, yeah, just, just do it. But if that had happened nowadays, there would be stalling. There would be, oh, well, we don't know if we can get the funds together. Just all these different tactics, which they didn't attempt to do at all. They were just, yeah, sure. Very upfront with it. The FBI had gathered the money from local banks in the form of 10,000 unmarked $20 bills. So that's what he wanted. Just 20s. Mm -hmm. Negotiable. The serial numbers were recorded microfilm photographed and were from the 1963A and 1969 Federal Reserve issued series. I guess Federal Reserve money is different than regular money in the way that Federal Reserve bills are marked with an F on them. So if you find any bills in cash that have an F on them, then they were directly dispersed by the Federal Reserve. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. Now you know. The more you know. Ding. At 5.39 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the plane landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper told the pilots to taxi the plane to a well-lit area off the tarmac and instructed everyone on the plane to close all the window shades to avoid possible police snipers. Like, a bullet's not gonna go through plexiglass an extra layer if they can't see him they're not going to blindly shoot into the plane why not it's the 70s they just gave him the money if you hit every single one you've got a pretty good chance of hitting this guy <laughs> <laughs> there's only so many windows the money in the parachutes were delivered to tina mucklow another flight attendant via the aft stairs those are the best stairs after which cooper released all the passengers yet kept the crew and the pilots Cooper had very specific demands of the flight crew. They would chart a course southeast towards Mexico City at approximately 115 miles per hour, at a maximum of 10,000 feet. So 115 miles per hour in a plane is, it's probably the slowest that you can go in a plane to keep it in the air. It's slower than takeoff. It's pretty slow. He wanted the landing gear deployed, the wing flaps to be lowered to 15 degrees, the main cabin to be unpressurized and the rear exit door opened with the rear staircase deployed. Very interesting. Due to the flying conditions Cooper had requested, the pilots informed Cooper they would need a second refueling in Reno, Nevada. The airline had objected to the staircase being left out as it was unsafe. Of course, you don't fly a fucking plane with a staircase hanging out. <laughs> And Cooper replied that it was safe and that he would deploy it during the flight. Taking stock of everything that's happened so far and his demands and also instructed the flight crew, your first thought automatically goes to, this guy knows a thing or two about flying. Yeah. That's definitely how it comes off. I was just thinking to myself, this dude couldn't have been doing research vigorously on flying with the internet like we would nowadays, so he's either got to be experienced personally with flying aircrafts or heavily researched just through books and encyclopedias and however you would research in the 70s, I suppose. <laughs> it gets more interesting. At 7.40 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the plane took off with Cooper, the flight crew, and flight attendant Tina Mucklow. Two F-106 fighter jets tailed the airline out of view of Cooper. Cooper then told Mucklow to move into the cockpit with the rest of the crew and stay there. Mucklow observed Cooper tying something to his waist before she went into the cockpit. A few minutes later, a warning light indicated that the aft staircase had been activated by a manual lever in the rear of the craft. There's so much back end to this. 
It's pretty nice aft. (laughs) (laughs) The co-pilot offered assistance over the intercom, and Cooper, of course, stubborn asshole, refused. And at approximately 8.13 p.m., the tail section lifted upwards and needed to be readjusted. This was suspected to be at the time Cooper leapt from the plane. And at 10.15, the aircraft landed in Reno, Nevada and was flooded by the FBI, state troopers, and Reno police. Cooper was nowhere to be found, of course. He jumped out of the plane. Of course. The investigation really dives into a lot involving where he jumped, when he jumped. There's just so many different elements to this entire thing. And we're going to get into the investigation, and it's it's intriguing, to say the least. Anybody that's going to pull a stunt like this has to have meticulous planning. You're not just going to get on a plane, no matter if it's 1971 or now, and just be like, you know what, I'm going to take this shit over <laughs> The interesting thing is, is that at the end of the, well, during the investigation, because it spanned for a very long time, this investigation, during the investigation, they looked at the front portion of the heist and they said, wow, you know, this guy really planned it out. He knew his stuff. It seemed like he was really locked in. And then as the investigation goes on and they find less and less evidence and they have no leads and whatever else comes down the pike, they start to say that he's really stupid. So it's, it's kind of this weird flip-flop where the FBI starts to kind of tarnish his name and say, well, he meticulously planned it in the first half of the heist, and then he goes and does some stupid stuff. So he's obviously just a moron, but moron uh, avoided capture. Yeah, it seems more so like they were just salty and <laughs> they were trying to like make up for that, compensate for it a little bit. The only thing that really comes to mind when we talk about this because I I couldn't tell you of another relatively modern aged heist that was as infamous as this one it's just really reminiscent to me of like the the GTA 5 storyline like he's in this little room (laughs) with like Lester walking around with a cane and they're planning it out for weeks like the heists in that game it's got so many different elements to it I like it bet you they loosely in writing like one of these major heists we're going to jump out of a plane and do this and that i'm sure off of this for sure well let's get into the investigation after searching the plane fbi agents uncovered 66 unidentified fingerprints could be passengers could be cooper um <laughs> a black clip on tie and tie clip and two of the four parachutes One parachute had been opened and had two shroud lines cut from it. That's also an interesting fact. Composite sketches would later go on to be made from witness accounts, some including sunglasses, which Cooper had wore through the majority of the heist. Pretty baller. So it says that after he had given his demands to the flight attendant, he put on these shades, which... (laughs) Uh, You know, in my head, I'm thinking like, man, this is the point of no return. You handed over your demands. If you were thinking about turning back at any point, it's done. It's done and over with now. And you just put on these shades and you're like, yep, time to kick ass. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind the fact that all the flight attendants in the entire passenger list of the plane had seen your face already. But Well, I heard after you put on sunglasses, it's really easy for people to forget your face. It's like this weird subliminal subconscious thing. That might be that very well could be part of it also. So I just made that up. (laughs) (laughs) The flight attendants would go on to say that he was calm throughout the entire ordeal, polite and well-spoken. He ordered a bourbon and Cokes and even tipped the attendants for their work. During the stop in Seattle, he also requested meals for the crew. He was familiar with the local terrain and areas, commenting, Looks like Tacoma down there, and mentioned the proximity to McCord Air Force Base. That was another interesting thing, is that he knew where the Air Force Base was. So if you take that along with the other evidence of him knowing how to fly the plane and how to set the wing and all that other stuff it more and more looks like he was a trained pilot that's really what what it's coming off as it doesn't sound like he was a stupid man it sounds like he had all angles covered everything although dan cooper was the name given to buy the plane tickets the moniker db cooper became associated with the heist this was due to either a misprint on the airline ticket itself or an error by james long 
a local reporter in a rush to run the story. What an can you imagine? Fuck that up. But that made the heist name even cooler. Like, I guess, yeah. We're talking about D.B. Cooper right now. Yeah, now Dan. imagine if we were like, oh, let's talk about the heist of Dan Cooper. Yeah, maybe it was intentional. You got this reporter, journalist type dude, and he's like, ah, oh, heist by Dan Cooper. That's not going to catch any eyes. Let's give him a cool name. <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. Maybe. You're giving him a lot of credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The error was reprinted, and many other publishers ran the same name, ingraining the name D.B. Cooper into the public's memory. Again, I think it's cooler. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the FBI go on with their investigation, and so begins this massive undertaking. Using variables such as the craft speed, altitude, conditions, and time frame, investigators worked on the possible drop point for Cooper. This was difficult to determine, given that any slight variation to these conditions would result in a completely different landing site. Also taken into account would be how long Cooper Free fell from the plane before deploying his chute. Neither of the tailing Air Force pilots had seen him jump from the plane or a parachute opening. I was reading about these F-106s. So these F-106 fighter jets, what they had to do when they were tailing the airline is they had to run these alternating S patterns. They were flying left and right in long S patterns. The reason being is that the F-106 could not go as slow as 115 miles per hour. I was Mm. just about to say that's probably the reason. They kept left and right, left and right to stay at the same speed as the plane. So when they go back and they look at the investigation, especially the eyewitness account of the pilots, did they see a parachute opening? It was kind of hard for them to see if a parachute had opened for a few reasons. It was nighttime, there was cloud cover, and they were doing these S patterns. Realistically, even though they hadn't seen him jump from the plane, he could have easily jumped at any time. Did they have adequate night vision in 1971? Do we know that? That's a good question. I don't, I'm not even sure. Even so, the F-106s weren't outfitted with that type of technology. So it was all just based on their eyes. Yeah. Think if he jumped out of a plane at night, yeah. If they didn't have adequate night vision, then yeah, it's almost impossible to see. But if they were also strafing, I mean, how many hundreds of yards away from the plane were they? Mm-hmm. And then the other question is, if he jumped, the question that you just said, how far did he free fall? Because if he's underneath those planes and they're, you're yeah. done, once that parachute deploys, you can't see it. And he was wearing all black. He's wearing a suit. Yeah. James Bond. In the that dark shit. at night. It, yeah. There's, it's, <laughs> James Bond. Absolutely a James Bond. <laughs> oh. The F 106s, they were tailing from like above, right? They weren't underneath. Uh, They were behind. Behind. So they were behind and below. Okay. Oh, oh, really? So then there was the slight chance that one of them could have hit DB Cooper (laughs) mid-flight. Could you imagine? If they were below and behind, the odds of that, they're they're more probable than if they were like behind and above true that's like a naked gun movie (laughs) the pilot just puts on the windshield wipers hitting cooper in the face they just had to cover it up that's funny this leads us to the 813 question did db cooper actually jump off the plane at 813 or did he purposely create a diversion as to not let on to his actual drop point He had secured the crew in the cockpit and closed the curtain between first class and economy where he would jump from. Do you think like he just hid in the floor and then when they landed, he just (laughs) snuck out and just never jumped out of the plane itself? He stayed in the baggage, the the overhead baggage fucking (laughs) cabinets. It's surprising that you mentioned that because that was one of the thoughts behind the investigation is that at some point he did make his way into maybe under the plane. Yeah. And then when they landed, he had just snuck off. He just tiptoed out the landing gear (laughs) right into the woods. Yeah. It's it's possible. On Sasquatch's back and just rode into the night. (laughs) He had a horse waiting. Yeah. (laughs) Yay. If you could pull that off, you definitely can have a horse waiting. (laughs) It's running beside the plane. (laughs) The next scene from Fast and the Furious 12. 
<laughs> poor horse. <laughs> a poor horse. Later in 1972, the Air Force performed a sled test in which they took a 727 and a 200-pound sled and launched the sled off a plane around the same time, altitude, and speed of the original flight. Later on, researchers would question this test as it was performed under optimal weather and over the ocean as opposed to the northwest forests. This would provide results far different from the actual heist conditions. The night of the heist, that particular area had limited visibility with heavy cloud cover, a heavy rainstorm, and add in the fact that it was nighttime. It's questionable if Cooper even successfully opened his chute. That right there is the entire thing of the FBI and investigators calling this man stupid because of the conditions of the drop. But if you were in a situation where you were taking over a plane and you were hijacking a plane and you're at this point where it's literally the end game of the heist, you have the staircase down, you have your parachute on, you have your money, you've gotten everything that you need, everything is going according to plan, you're not going to call it off at this point. You're not going to say, oh, well, I'm not going to jump from the plane because when we land, I'm going to prison. He really had no choice at this point. The conditions are one thing. You can't really, con you can't control the weather. I, I mean, unless you're harp, but <laughs> you, you can't control the weather conditions on the night of the heist. I feel like, yeah, it wasn't optimal, but what other choice did he have? You just got to do it. What if the 200K was just a diversion? He didn't want the money. So he just landed, took off. What did he want? To give that flight attendant his number? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole thing. <laughs> the massive search for any remains of Cooper's heist and landing point covered a vast land area in southwestern Washington. Search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties and areas north and south of the Lewis River. That's near Mount St. Helens, to give you a point of reference. The FBI and sheriffs searched by foot, helicopter, and fixed-wing aircraft provided by the Sheriff's Office and Oregon Army National Guard. Other searches included patrol boats along Lake Merwin, Yale Lake, and a local man-made reservoir. Investigators also went door-to-door -to, -door to interview locals and search for any equipment related to the heists. You know, parachutes and whatever else, duffel bags filled with cash. Mm. Sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they found the sunglasses. The FBI even looked into people who had disappeared the following days of the heist in case he had landed successfully and left to pursue his new glamorous $200,000 life. What would a $200,000 life equate to in the 70s? Um, like a $600,000 life? <laughs> it translates to like $1.3 oh, today. Yeah, okay. I think I read low million. It's not an amazing amount of money, but in the 70s, it definitely would have bought you a new life. Yeah. Uh, $1.3 now is pretty damn good. It's very interesting. The search that went on for this man is just astounding. Also, imagine how cold it was in November at whatever altitude he was at, jumping in the northwest yep. Woo, in a suit. Yeah, that's something that they had taken into account when they were doing the investigation. They were trying to figure out, and that, that was part of why they called him stupid. They said, oh, you're jumping out of a plane in the Northwest in November. You're going to freeze to death. The conditions of the land and the weather, you wouldn't have survived out in the wilderness. But again, that's kind of downplaying his genius when it comes to this heist, but it is something to take into account if he was wearing just a, a plain old suit and landed in the middle of the wilderness of Northwest Pacific. It's, it's cold as fuck. Hushlings, we will return after these brief messages. Hello everyone, and welcome to a little series I like to call Serial Killer Tuesdays. Every Tuesday, I like to take a look at some of the world's most notorious killers. Criminal psychology, criminal behavior, and the minds of murderers have piqued my interest for as long as I can remember. Join me as we explore the depraved, sickening, and hardcore underbelly of the coin term serial killer. Let's dive into a world that seems almost too heinous to imagine, yet is very much a reality. Greetings, Hushlings. I'm Declassified Dave, 
And I'm Mystery Mike. And as always, we're joined by our pal, Slick Frank Sanders. Slick Frank Sanders here. We join your preceptors again as we travel to Japan and venture to the flanks of Mount Fuji, where we explore Okigahara Forest. We travel deep into the woods and uncover the mysteries of the Sea of Trees, or more commonly known as the Suicide Forest and what compels people to go there and possibly end their lives. As this forest has a reputation in Japanese mythology as the home for ghosts of the dead. Join the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, Monday, July 12th, for debriefing 27, Okigahara Forest. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. After the raw spring thaw in 1972, the FBI enlisted 200 soldiers from Fort Lewis, Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, volunteers, and others conducted another ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties, 18 days in March and 18 days in April. A marine salvage firm, Electronic Explorations Company, used a submarine to search the depths of Lake Merwin. The most extensive operation in U.S. history uncovered no significant evidence related to the hijacking. Astonishing. That's U.S. law enforcement for you. A month after the hijacking, the FBI released the list of serial numbers related to the ransom to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses and law enforcement agencies around the world. The airline Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money, up to $25,000. In 1972, the U.S. Attorney General released the serial numbers of the bills to the general public. In the years following, many claims and counterfeits were used to gain money from news outlets offering rewards. Can you imagine just being like a counterfeiter and being like, I got TV Coopers, all of it. I got all the money. Throw that shit on eBay. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you mentioned that because part of this counterfeit thing that was going on after they had released the serial numbers is that there were a few people who had counterfeited bills of the serial numbers and they would go to news outlets that were offering rewards for anything and they would bring these counterfeit bills and they would essentially just weasel them out of money in the tune of like thousands of dollars. I think one of the accounts was something of like $30,000 that one of these con men had gotten from the news outlets and then they later went on to find that the bills were fake and Wow. <laughs> but this was it was kind of a rampant thing over the years is that a lot of people brought in little inconsequential pieces of evidence and said it was related to to the Cooper case and they were getting paid. It's not only the airline that had given up the initial $200,000 in ransom, but it was also all the news outlets and the FBI and all these law enforcement agencies that were offering rewards that were losing money hand over fist just by giving them to cons. Let's take a look at the evidence of the heist. There were three major pieces of evidence that were found on the plane and examined. First was the black clip-on tie and mother-of-pearl tie clip. After examining the tie, it was found to contain fragments of bismuth, aluminum, cerium, strontium sulfide, and titanium. These are all elements commonly found in aircraft manufacturing plants. This may have been the connection to Cooper's aircraft and flight knowledge. Hmm. All these elements that were found on the tie, they were found in aircraft manufacturing and like metallurgical businesses where they created these composite metals for planes. One of the theories is that he wasn't necessarily like a worker, but that he was some sort of supervisor because he was well-spoken and a little middle to upper class, how they portrayed him. So he was some sort of supervisor in these warehouses and, and whatever else. It was really easy for someone in that position to take advantage of the long weekend or the the days off because keep in mind this happened thanksgiving eve yeah warehouses would have been shut down all these plants would have been shut down for the holiday so it's actually the perfect time to do it nobody would have needed to call out of work for this nobody would have needed to take a day off or call in sick or anything like that so everybody was already out of work as they found nobody had disappeared he probably being smart went back to work you think so 
Yeah, they hadn't found anybody who had gone missing. And even when they got into this whole breaking down the elements that were found on the tie, they hadn't seen anybody that was in a position in any of these types of plants that had gone missing around the time either. Maybe he just liked industrial smelling colognes. <laughs> <laughs> Radium number five. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the scent. That's the, the spritz. Scent. Just burns the nostrils. Mm. They have a thought that he worked in one of these plants and come Monday, he just went back to work like nothing ever happened. I see that as a really possible outcome of this, him either being, like you said, like a supervisor, even possibly an engineer at one of these plants, and was very well-rounded with the knowledge of how these planes work and how you can manipulate them to do what you really need them to. That seems viable. Mm -hmm. If he was stupid, before we move on real quick, if he was stupid, he wouldn't lower an aft staircase while you're going 115 miles an hour at 10,000 feet with drag. Mm Mm-hmm. You would think in theory, I mean, I'm not a flight engineer, but you would think in theory that if you lower something out that's that weight, it's not like an inflatable, like, emergency staircase. I would imagine that that's it. Wouldn't that at least fuck with the aerodynamics of the plane, especially going that yep. slow? So you'd think, you'd think he would understand that. Yeah, and they had told him that it was dangerous to do so, but he said otherwise, which in the end Engineer's was true. Engineer's case closed. That's it. Done. He yeah. worked at a plane. I mean, he's got to know, know something about... <laughs> the makeup of the plane yeah that along with his knowledge of the plane and his knowledge of flying conditions i guess really points to somebody who was in the airline business Mm -hmm. that's the way i see it also found on the plane were eight filter tipped raleigh cigarette butts in 1978 printed instructions on lowering the aft stairs on a Boeing 727 were found by a deer hunter near a logging road near Castle Rock, Washington, still within Flight 305's flight path. And lastly, on February 10th, 1980, a boy named Brian Ingram was on vacation with his family on the Columbia River at the beachfront known as Tina Bar. He found three packets of the ransom cash in the Sandy River Bank. The bills were badly disintegrated and still banded together. The FBI technicians confirmed that it, in fact, was a portion of the ransom money. Okay, so he had to have gotten away. Or uh, the money flew out like... like that's what I pictured. <laughs> money just flying all over the place as yeah. he's free falling. He, he, he jumps and then the backpack opens. Shit! <laughs> it, it had to have fallen by accident. There's no way he's just tossing money on the ground if he did make it, you know? Yeah. Unless it was to, like, mislead the feds somehow. I don't know. Part of me thinks that maybe this is with all the evidence and the and the investigation taken into mind is that he maybe had gone and just thrown packets of money in random places. Mm-hmm. There was an acceptable amount of loss in money that he was yeah. willing to just give up to hide his trail. Yeah. Let's not forget that he did cut two cords off of one of the parachutes. And I always thought that was kind of a weird thing with this investigation, with him cutting two lead lines off of the parachute. I don't know if it was maybe to tie the money to him. They said that he might have used it also to tie to the stairs, lift the staircase up, and then abruptly drop it so that he could fake them out with the time that he had jumped. Huh. That's really what brings up the 813 question, is whether he had taken those lines, tied them to the staircase, and just dropped it, so that it could seem like that was where he jumped off. And in reality, later on in the flight, he had just like sat on the last step and then just shoved off. Could have been. And that's another thing that they took into account. Anybody who's experienced with parachuting... Um, or skydiving or anything like that, they know that the best way to get out of a plane is not to jump off the plane. It is to fall out of the plane. Yeah. The tail end of the plane kind of doing that upward motion suggests that he jumped from the plane. I personally think that he just kind of staged that upward motion with the staircase. Could have been. Yeah. That'd be pretty genius. I think we should shine that spotlight on some of the leads that we have Between 1971 and 2016, the FBI processed over a thousand serious suspects, including assorted publicity seekers and deathbed confessors. Those are the big ones. If you're lying about that, you're an asshole. 
That's so but, sad. <laughs> that's so that's fucking your last sad. Sentence. That's your last hurrah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm D.B. Cooper, and you're just like, ah, fuck you all. <laughs> Little did they know there was six other people that did the same thing yeah. that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, your, your, your final moment is completely tarnished. <laughs> These are the three most notable and likely. First and most likely, according to former FBI agent Russell Kalam and former FBI probation officer Bernie Rhodes, was Richard Floyd McCoy. Very different from T.B. Cooper. McCoy was arrested five months after the heist in April of 1972. What was the charge? Well, you guessed it, hijacking a plane. The two heists have incredible similarities. In both heists, the plane was hijacked and the suspect parachuted away. They jumped off the aft staircase of Boeing 727, both requested four parachutes, were calmed during the crime, and used a note to inform the flight attendant of having a bomb. Wow, that's uncanny. It kind of makes you wonder if it was a copycat, though. Yeah. Yeah, or if there was, like, a really bad book published, Hijacking for Dummies, and a couple people read it. It also really depends on how much information was released by the police and by FBI in those five months pertaining to the heist. Both crimes occurred while Brigham Young University was on break, which points to McCoy and Cooper having ties to the school. McCoy's family identified an undisclosed object that was left on the plane during the heist, confirmed by the FBI. Also, McCoy looked incredibly similar to Cooper. McCoy was ruled out as a suspect and was sentenced to 45 years in federal prison for his heist attempt. Can you imagine if they got him? Yeah, right. The Brigham Young connection there, this is a loose thing that doesn't really have evidence behind it, but it's theorized that the undisclosed object was an alma mater ring or some sort of a pin from Brigham Young. Hmm, hmm. Again, there's no evidence to really back it that that's what it was, but it was mentioned that there was some sort of connection there with Brigham Young and the time frame of the university being on break. But that also, like I said, could be said of businesses, any business. Like we said, there's parallels with the McCoy and the Cooper hijackings, but was it as specific as Cooper's demands with the cabin being depressurized and the exact flight speeds and flight height and whatnot? They had not mentioned that, but no. I'm guessing if they ruled him out as a suspect at some point that they had looked at it and found the discrepancies. I'm not exactly sure if they had gone into that much detail or found out that much about his heist. Okay. The next suspect was Dwayne Weber, who had made a deathbed confession to his wife, Joe Weber, stating he was D.B. Cooper. His wife recalled nights where Dwayne would talk in his sleep about, quote, fingerprints on a plane, weird, and also had a knee injury, which he stated was due from jumping from a plane. It is also reported that Dwayne's handwriting was found in the margins of a book about the Cooper heist. Dwayne also reportedly took his wife on vacation at Tina Bar, where the money from the heist was found, and in his possession, a Northwest Airlines ticket. Hmm, that just might be a lot of coincidence because they're in the same area. I think Dwayne Weber and why they found his handwriting in the margins and all that stuff, I think he might have just become really obsessed with the heist. Probably. If you're reading a book and you're like, wow, you know, let's say that Dwayne Weber at one point in his life was like, yeah, I could hijack a plane or I could rob a bank or anything related to that. And then he goes and he reads a book about D.B. Cooper and becomes really obsessed with it. It's like if you watch a, a scary movie or something and then you go to bed and you have nightmares. Well, he reads this book about D.B. Cooper, and maybe in his dream, he's thinking about the fingerprints left on the plane or something. But you guys mentioned before, people that go and they do that deathbed confession type of thing. Eh. My question for that is, Joe Weber, did her life change? Did she get nicer things? Or did the house, mm. did they move into a different house? Did they always have no financial issues miraculously or something? And not to say that they might have been already well off anyways but if the guys skimmed 200k in cash off the government you would think from 1971 till whenever he died there must had to be some she must have noticed more vacations i, I don't know could have been any anything yeah really well, the third and final suspect was Kenneth Peter Christensen. A man named Lyle Christensen watched a documentary on Cooper and thought his late brother Kenneth 
could have been Cooper. Christensen was a trained paratrooper in the Army in 1944. After the war, he joined Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic, then went on to become a flight attendant and purser out of Seattle. So a purser, it's a thing that they don't do on planes anymore, but a purser is a person that handles money. If somebody buys a drink, they hand over cash, the purser is the one that takes the cash. Mm. I am the flight treasurer. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. Christensen enjoyed bourbon and coke and was a smoker, like that of Cooper. He purchased his house in cash just months after the crime date and saved newspaper clippings related to the heist. The flight attendant, Schaffner, had even told the FBI that the photo of Christensen had more closely resembled that of Cooper more than any other suspect. Later, it was determined that he was no longer a viable suspect. Do we know why hmm. they released him on that? There was no information as to why. Hmm. Looking at a picture of Christensen, he is pretty much a fucking dead ringer for D.B. Cooper in the drawings of D.B. Cooper in the sketches. He, to me, seems like the most likely suspect yeah. to actually be D.B. Cooper, especially with his ties to the airlines, and he would know these things about the planes, especially if he was a purser and he was a, a flight attendant, he would know where the aft stair release would be. And There's also subtleties, too, like just the bourbon and coke part. Thousands of people like that, but I imagine him not thinking about that when you're ordering that on the plane. Maybe that could have been something that could have connected you. So, so yeah, like a giveaway, and that he was a smoker, like people drink bourbon and smoke cigarettes, so many. But the fact that he purchased the house in cash, my question is, when that transaction happened, were they the corded bills that he paid with? Because he had to have, no matter how he paid in cash, there had to be a way to exchange that money if he got clean money or the money that was tracked he had to go to a financial institution to, to flip that there's no way unless he bought his house in pesos or something man like went to mexico came back and then mm. flipped exchange rates but you'd still figure that out so my question is where's the transaction record from that because if he paid with cash unless that was the biggest oversight of that bank and they didn't even check then man he got away with it if this was db cooper I don't think I could see this man paying for a house in cash with the exact money that was supplied by the feds. I think he'd be smart enough to clean it, launder it, and get different money, whether it be through gambling or, you know, whatever it may be. But 200k in a couple months to clean that? Upon further investigation of Christensen, they did find out that he did not pay for his house in cash. He had taken out a traditional mortgage, like 17 years or something like that, had left on it. Realistically, everything else lines up. And also, if you were to rob a bank tomorrow, are you going to go out and buy a Bugatti? Yes. You know, yeah. that's like that's like the number one thing of any robbery or theft scenario in movies and stuff. Don't go out and spend your money because that'll pretty much point to you yeah. as a suspect. So to clear up my question with that, obviously, if it was paid in cash, then obviously that's a valid question. But mm -hmm. did he put the down payment in cash? Like, is that like what we're is that what we're originally figuring out? It's possible. They didn't really dive into how he paid for the house or the cash that he used to pay for the house. But again, you have to think there were financial institutions, so that includes banks, mortgage companies, that were looking especially for those serial numbers. Yeah. So it's not like he could have handed over stacks of cash to the bank and them not look at the serial numbers of the bills that he was paying with. Okay. It does bring up that good point that you did make is that how do you clean that money when you have an entire country looking for that money and looking for those serial numbers? How do you do it? Yeah. But also it's the 70s. You could go to I was talking about this the other day. You could go to anywhere in the deep south. Back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they were a little behind the times when it came to transactions and stuff like that. So you could have went to any small car dealership in the middle of Mississippi 
East Bumfuck Mississippi and Everybody bought a from car Mississippi's there. He's like, well, fuck you, Mystery Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Sorry, you're just the example. But you could have went to any small car dealership. You could have went to any small family-owned bank or family-owned lender. You could have done any number of things on a small scale to exchange that money. And that would have been the smart move. Yeah. You don't take $200,000 to the bank and say, yeah, I'd like to trade this $200,000 for a different $200,000. Yeah. This one's just not doing it for me. That's the easiest way to wash your money is to just make small transactions, do small things here and there, and eventually you work your way through that entire cash deposit. Well, originally, the man known as D.B. Cooper was charged with air piracy, a charge that held a statute of limitations of five years. A Portland grand jury reconvened in 1976 to change the charges for Dan Cooper to violating the Hobbs Act, which had no statute of limitations. The Hobbs Act relates to government extortion or robbery attempts of federal funds. As of the end of the investigation in 2016, The Cooper case has 60 volumes and measures 40 feet high when stacked. There have been no arrests and no further evidence has been found. It ends in 2016, starts in the 70s. That's a long... 40 40 plus years. 40 plus years of investigating this and taking on all these different things and they come out with fucking zip. Zilch. How much money and how much resources the FBI put into this case? (laughs) Well, more than the 200K that they gave him. Yeah, they should have just gotten to a point where they're like, all right, well, we've invested $200,000 into this investigation. We found nothing. We should drop it now. But no, it goes on for 40 years. So their investigation and how much money and manpower they put into it, they probably spent millions trying to bring this guy in. They probably just hired a new director in 2015 and they saw the deficit and they were like, Jesus, (laughs) (laughs) this is done, man. He was some sort of maybe a vet from the Korean War or even early World War II, like they had mentioned of one of the suspects. That man is dead. Yeah, he's probably long gone, unfortunately. And if he's not dead, he is well old and he's not going to serve any time in jail. They had to cut ties at some point in 2016. Yep. That's crazy. That was an interesting little bit of information, like a realm of possibility thing that he could have been a vet because I've seen many movies and heard of many books about war vets carrying out these heists, whether it be out of spite for the military or just the fact that it'd be so easy because of their knowledge and expertise in, in what they do. So I, I definitely think that could have been a possibility. I've never heard of like a, a real case of it like actually happening, but I, I could see it being possible. Just a couple of little side note facts to close us out. After the Cooper hijacking, the federal government implemented the ability to search bags and carry-ons for flights, something that previously hadn't existed. Also, planes were outfitted with a latch that prevents the aft stairs from being lowered mid-flight, and it was appropriately named the Cooper Vane. Kind of interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought that that would have been the thing that they implemented the carry-on search for. I mean, it was the bomb thing. I don't know if it was his hijacking alone that really pushed that, because in the 70s, there was a ton of hijackings, and most of of the hijackings of planes were to bring people to Cuba. So people wanted to escape to Cuba. That accounted for a lot of the hijackings in the 70s. Very odd little fact. Um, I think that, along with, with Cooper, kind of pushed that legislation for searches and bags and stuff. Yeah, very interesting. Mysterious. All right. Dave, your final thoughts? I think he, whoever this guy was, whether it was Christensen, he's probably the highest possibility if that's a different alias he was going by, D.B. Cooper. If it was a no-name that they never found or never had on a suspect list, I personally think they either jumped, survived, got away with it, or tiptoed off the landing gear when that thing hit the ground and went off into the night. Or he jumped at a different point. I think the biggest point for me is when you had said that he had faked it by slamming the aft staircase. I think that could have been a dupe. And the person who did do this was clearly smart enough on all levels to pull something like this off, including the rest of their life spending that money. I think whoever it was got away with it and probably didn't hit the side of a mountain and die. 
I'm going to agree with Dave. I think that Cooper had planned this out so meticulously and had really thought of everything. And I doubt that he reached a level of the heist where, where he just all of a sudden turned off his brain as the FBI would go on to call him stupid. I don't think he was stupid by far. I think he was a, I think he was a vet. Uh, some sort of maybe a, a pilot or, as they said, a paratrooper. He knew the differences with parachutes and whatnot. I do think that he got away with it. You know, they never found parachute. They never found a body from all signs. He survived this jump and he just carried on those smarts, went back to work and stowed away that money and never really had to worry about being broke again. I think that was really the end point for him is that he just didn't want to be broke anymore. <laughs> yeah. Lived his entire life comfortably, bought himself a little house, and just lived a normal life like nothing had ever happened. Frank, final thoughts? Frank's final thoughts. I'm pretty um, mixed and partial with my final thoughts on this one. I agree with you guys that if it were to be any of the suspects that we discussed, Christensen seems like a pretty viable suspect. And yes, I agree, if anybody was going to be able to pull this off, it'd be some sort of aircraft expert, uh, whether it be somebody that was engineering and manufacturing them, or even an Air Force vet that was experienced with parachuting and things of that sort. But in my head, I can just see too many things going wrong for this to have worked out well for him. The fact that it was nighttime and the chunk of land that he allegedly deployed into was just so vast i feel like it'd be very very difficult without really high-tech gear to be able to accurately deploy into a specific location where he would either have gear to get out of that land with or to meet at some sort of rendezvous to get out of there i just see too many things going wrong whether it be his parachute getting caught in a 90 foot tall pine tree and him having to cut it and breaking his leg in the woods and all of a sudden you're starving a week later and you're dead but then there, there's the fact that no parachute was found no body was found no big bag of cash was found no briefcase with a bomb was found there was no evidence so that leaves it pretty open-ended for me to circle back. That's why I'm left impartial. I can't see this really going right in my head, but at the same time, there was no evidence left behind. It was a massive chunk of land. Not only that, they were looking at oceans, they were looking at the bottoms of lakes. I don't really have an absolute final opinion. I'm left pretty open-ended on this. Mm. I like it, though. I like that it's a mystery and it's a mystery that hasn't been solved. You know, there's there's no definitive answer to it. And I think that in itself makes this a very cool case. Yeah. Good for you, Coop, if you made it and you lived your life beautifully. I Wherever hope you, you are. hooked up with that flight attendant. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Later on. <laughs> if it was anyone, all those other suspects or anybody like Dwayne, if he hooked up, his wife would be pretty pissed <laughs> off. Well, that's going to do it for Debriefing 26. What are your thoughts? Did we miss anything that we should have discussed? Did we get the D.B. Cooper heist wrong? Do you know who D.B. Cooper was? Are you D.B. Cooper? You can hit us up at contact at hushhushsociety.com. Hushlings, join us for Debriefing 27, where we cover the Aokigora Forest, also known as the Suicide Forest on Monday, June 28th. Don't forget to tune in for our Season 3 and 1-year anniversary show streaming live on Facebook on Tuesday, August 17th. We'll be covering the NWO and the Illuminati, as well as giveaways, Hush Trivia, and so much more. Thank you again for joining the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. I'm Declassified Dave. I'm Mr. Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Give me the, the money. The best cup secrets are hidden <laughs> in plain sight. Jump, 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 jump.